Welcome to the Six Figure Influencer Podcast. I'm your host, Allie Reeves, and my purpose is to help women grow their online businesses, influence, and income with ease. If you're ready to drop the excuses and start showing up as the boss you know you're meant to be, then you've come to the right place. Let's get started. Hi, friends. I'm so excited for you to hear today's episode and chat with none other than the Corey Poirier. Okay, in just a second, you are going to hear all of all of the things this man has done and accomplished in the span of his career. And it is it is impressive and a little mind-boggling. All right, we're going to get there. But whenever I was going back and forth and talking about today's episode and, you know, the different topics, obviously, you know, with his experience and all of the knowledge that he brings to the table, there was a plethora of ideas that we could have chosen for today's topic. And how we landed on this topic of landing your branded talk, whether that be on the TEDx stage or your alma mater or wherever, how we landed on that was because, first of all, I had never talked about anything even close to that on in this podcast, so that's kind of cool. Also, selfishly, as somebody who would love to one day have my own branded talk, this is totally something that I just was dying to hear his advice and perspective on. But also, I have spoken to so many of you who have divulged to me that you too have a dream to one day speak on stages and get paid to share your story and your experience and perspective on so many different topics. I know that so many of you sitting in on calls one-on-one, I, I would ask the question, like, what is your big goal? Like, what's like the big picture, huge goal for you? And almost every single person, even if they had a fear of public speaking, that was still something that they had on their heart. And I just thought, wow, what a cool way for me to kind of pop back in to your reality and say, hey, by the way, a lot of you told me this was something that you had on your heart, something that you pictured for yourself in the future. So it is possible. And just wait until you hear Corey's story because he struggled with severe anxiety. He barely graduated high school. I mean, he did not come up with a background or a personality of anybody that you would picture that would eventually speak on three TEDx stages, right? Or speak at Harvard. But he put in the work. He made the connections. He overcame his fears and made some incredible things happen. So I just thought that this would be a really cool story for all of us to hear and also a really great way to learn from one of the best. And let me tell you, Corey delivered like none other. I'm so thankful for his wisdom and generosity because he just gave and gave and gave. Even when we went over the time limit of what I told him the interview would take, he just kept giving and I I was just so thankful for his generosity and all of the nuggets of wisdom that he shared. So thank you, 
Corey. And before we get to the interview, I want to give you a bit of a background on him. Corey Poirier is a multiple-time TEDx and sought-after keynote speaker. Throughout his career, he has interviewed over 6,000 of the world's top achievers, including Les Brown, David Wolf, Zig freaking Ziggler and Tom Ziggler, Marianne Williamson, which by the way is Oprah's spiritual advisor. No big deal. Or she used to be anyway. Bob Proctor and Mike Dooley. Just, you know, just to name a few. He is also a published author and has written the book of public speaking, which spoiler alert, he is giving away to the listeners of this podcast for free. So keep listening to hear how you can get your hands on that. And also his latest book called The Book of Why and How, Discover the Timeless Secrets to Meaning, Success, and Abundance, which has appeared on the top of four book charts. As if that's not enough to be proud of, Corey hosts three top-rated podcasts, including the top-rated for eight-plus years, Let's Do Influencing, and he is the creator of the new Blue Talks brand, that is blue without the E, and that stands for business, life, and universe. All of these things are linked in the show notes, so definitely go and check all of those out. But first, listen to this interview because it is a game changer. And also, last thing I will say, so many of the tips that he shares in this interview can be applied to many different areas of life, not just landing a paid speaking gig. All right. So even if you are somebody who you just know under no circumstances, will you get up on a stage ever? It's just, it's not on your heart ever, ever, ever. And like, fine. I get that. Never say never, but fine. Okay, fine. Again, so many of these things can be applied to going for your dream job or submitting any kind of application. Like he gives so much insight onto the back end, you know, things that a lot of people, especially who are newer to the industry or newer to any space that just you wouldn't consider, right? But he's, he's been there. He's done that. He's been doing this for years. So he gives so much insight into the background and the back end of things that you just wouldn't think of. So yeah, it's just so good. All right. I'm going to be quiet. Buckle up because this is a good one. Enjoy my chat with Corey Poirier. All right, we are recording. Corey, welcome to the Six Figure Influencer Podcast. I'm so happy you're here. I'm super stoked to be here, Allie. Thank you so much. Okay, so I've already done your intro. Everybody knows what a boss you are and all the crazy <laughs> the crazy things you have done. You are known as the modern Napoleon Hill due to all of the people that you have, all of the incredible people that you have interviewed. Over 6,000, right? Yeah, it's it still seems a little crazy to me to say that number. That is why. Like, do you have a life? What? What? How did? Oh, okay. First of all, my first question for you is: How long did it take you to get to six thousand people? So this is where it gets confusing sometimes for people to go. Okay, well, you know, if you think about a podcast, for instance, and you add the numbers up, you're like, how does that work? And so, full disclosure, it's a mixture between interviews I've done for my shows interviews I did for a book series that I had, 
And then the biggest one where the largest number came in was a business publication, like a newspaper, business newspaper that I had for six years. Mm -hmm. And so it would be similar to say Success Magazine in scope. And so because of that newspaper, because we sold a lot of ads, we had like 60 pages to fill. And so it wasn't abnormal for me to do 80 or 90 interviews in one month. Oh, and so man. when you start crunching those numbers, you start seeing how the numbers built up. So by the time I got into podcasting, I was probably honestly around 3,500, 3,800. So that's how it happened initially was that I was just constantly doing all the interviews and I had freelancers to write the stories. But I, I got excited about and was obsessed with the interview side. So I'm like, I'm happy to let you write the story, which takes more time. I just want to do the interviews. But it was, it was pretty intense because that means if you think about it, that's like, what, 90 hours of interviews in a month? And the only thing that saved me was where I was doing the interviews was a low, um, an area where everything was nearby. So it wasn't like I had to drive two hours to do a one-hour interview. Sure. I could literally drive five minutes to do a 30-minute interview. Right. But still the takeaway is that's how the numbers came into play. So how long did it take me? I started the first interview for that newspaper, and I'd done some interviews before that. But the first one for that newspaper is 2000 and. 2007. So okay. what is that? That 13 years since then to now. Wow. It's, it's not, it, you know, it definitely hasn't been overnight is what I'll say. Of course. It, ne- it never is. <laughs> all right. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense, but, but that's not all that you do, Corey. You've been a three-time TEDx speaker. You've spoken on Harvard stage. You, you, do three podcasts. You host three podcasts, including um, the top rated one, Let's Do Influencing. And then I know Getting Paid to Speak is that that's another one, right? And then what's the third? The third one is actually Blue Talks. Uh, so right. it's a Blue Talks brand. So, in fairness to, I'm not with that one, I'm not technically hosting. With that one so far, what we've done is for people that we've recorded their video. Uh, and from their talk, we're just taking the audio of their talk, just like TEDx would do, yeah. and the audio. So when I say three, one of them I'm um, hosting with interviews. The other one, which is the Get Paid to Speak one, is just a seven-minute me talking about how to crush it on stages. So it's really easy podcast to put together. The Blue Talks, we're literally just taking audio from the video and using it. So that's how it's all manageable. Okay. Well, that makes me feel a lot better because I'm there. I mean, like this is... I do nothing and I'm overwhelmed. You know what I mean? So I see somebody like you and I'm like, dang it. <laughs> but that that does make me feel better. Thank you for being honest. Absolutely. And I wanted to have you on here because you've done so many incredible things. And we're going to talk about how somebody like me or a listener of this show can land their own talk on the TEDx stage or on your stage for Blue Talks or wherever they dream of speaking we're going to we're going to go into that and um but first i really wanted to dive into how you got to where you are today because even even with your humble explanation you, you what you've done is incredible um and you were raised by a single mom i know that you say that you barely graduated high school how like how did you get from from there to here and and like one thing you know people call you the modern day napoleon hill and what inspired napoleon hill to write think and grow rich was andrew carnegie 
who gave him, who challenged him to interview all these successful people, right? So did you have something like that for yourself? Did somebody whisper something in your ear? Like, hey, Corey, do this, interview 6,000 people. What was it? (laughs) So yeah, there's a couple things I unpacked there. So as far as the how, talk about that first, and then I'll remind me to circle back to the whisper in my ear part. But the how part really... uh, if I go from there to here or here to there, as mm-hmm. far as when I started, I, as you said, I was raised by a single mother. I grew up in a tiny little town. When I say I barely graduated high school, sometimes people probably think that's just like a, a way to kind of bring people into my story. But here's the truth. I got a 49 plus one in a history course, which is almost embarrassing that it's history. But the teacher gave me the 49 plus one to let me know I didn't earn the plus one. And I feel like it was, I don't know if it was intuition and intelligence on his part, or if it was just like a slap in the face, I have no idea, but it was my graduating year. So, and I needed that course. So he technically, so I always say, I I don't know if I technically graduated, you know, because he gave me the plus one. And so I might've been at 45% and really failed, but he gave me the 49 plus one to say, I'm not going to hold you back a whole year over this, but I want you to remember that you didn't earn it. So so just to you know, put a stamp on that, I really did barely graduate high school. Mm-hmm. And I often share that I, I didn't know the difference between fiction and nonfiction when I left high school. So mm-hmm. it's not like I was... And, and I mean, for somebody who writes books years later, that's really a weird, you know, weird uh, thing to happen that many years later. And so first of all, as you, as you shared that, that's kind of where I started. And on top of that, I battled generalized anxiety and hypochondria in my late teens, or early 20s. And so for those that don't know, hypochondria means everything, disease I read about, I developed the symptoms. And wow. it certainly makes it hard to perform at a high level when you're spending half your days in the doctor's office thinking you have something. And I even know where it started. It started when I read about Michael, ja- uh, Michael J. Fox having Parkinson's at such a young age. Mm-hmm. I don't know, somewhere in my head went, wow, if he can have Parkinson's at that young of an age. And then I literally started, to, I read the article and started developing the symptoms. And it was just like a, a vicious cycle for about two years. So I have to say the first part certainly didn't show any signs that uh, I was going to have any sort of notable success, if you will, if you want to call it that. Uh, the only thing that happened in those years, in between those years, was I did start a newspaper, my first newspaper. Mm-hmm. And how that got started, because this ties into the Napoleon Hill whisper in my ear thing. Okay, It wasn't really a whisper in my ear, but I went through an entrepreneurial program. Mm-hmm. And with the entrepreneurial program, if we wanted the seed money to start our business at the end, we had to have a business idea that was feasible. Mm-hmm. And so me and my business partner, Tyler, at the time, had an idea for a business, uh, sorry, a clothing store with top 40 CDs. And we did all this all this research. And at the end of the day, we figured out it would cost us about a quarter of a million each to launch this uh, store. And we probably had about uh, $250 combined at the time. Yeah. So that wasn't going to happen. And we had like three weeks, late, three weeks left to come up with a business idea that was feasible if we wanted to start a business. And so I said to Tyler, you know, we've been interviewing all these local business owners to learn from them as mentors. What if we were to turn that into something? Like we loved learning. What if we were to hire or turn that into something where somebody else could learn? And that was what birthed the, the business newspaper, the first one. Because I said, what if we were to go around and interview local business owners, share their story and sell advertising? Now, I will say, admittedly, at the time, I didn't think we were going to be selling advertising because I had never sold anything in my life. My thinking was people will buy it for $1.50 to support the local kids that Uh are running this newspaper. 
that we realized as soon as we launched that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. So all of a sudden, these two guys that have never made a cold call, have never spoken in public, now have to go out in front of people and sell advertising. And so it was a really weird start. But I will say that was the one thing, if I look back and say what started this all, obviously mm-hmm. that was a really big defining moment, us overcoming that fear and starting that newspaper. And then here's the other thing that's cool about that is that we had to edit the newspaper. Now, if I go back and look at those newspapers, they were, I mean, you if you read them, you'd be like, whoa, who's edited? The grammar is horrible. Yeah. And, but, it, but what happened was I had I actually learned how to edit. I learned grammar by doing it. Right? Wow. We had a publisher uh, who was designing the paper for us and he had a lot of editing experience. So he'd say, no, this should go here. This should be here. And so I started learning about the written word from that newspaper. So if I kind of look back and what started it all, that started it all. But right up until my mid-20s, again, I was... Uh, thought I had anxiety, or I had anxiety, thought I had everything, I, every disease I read about. But it's weird because it seemed like I was having career success and struggling in my personal life. Because if I finish this whole story off, the next thing that happened, even while I was dealing with all these anxieties, is I got landed this job at a Fortune 500 company. Mm-hmm. Company a lot of people know is Toshiba. So Toshiba mm-hmm. that makes the laptops, TVs, what have you. Mm-hmm. And I landed this, co- it was the 58th largest company in the world. I was hired out of 177 applicants, even though I had no business being hired over some of them. Asked the guy why he hired me, and he said, because you're from a small town, you moved across the country, and I know you have no choice but to succeed. And I also see that you started newspaper at age 19, and I know, again, to do that, selling advertising, you know how to sell. And I don't necessarily think I knew how to sell like he thought I did, but I at least knew how to get by. And so the second part to this is that this is still during this whole thing of where I'm fighting anxiety and everything else, but I'm going out and selling photocopiers door to door. If anybody wants to try it, it's not fun. <laughs> and, but here, and I, the first year I was told by my manager every month, you're going to, you're not going to survive. We're not going to give any more business cards. Cause you're not gonna, you know, you're not selling. And that was the first year. But the second year I made president's club. Uh, I was the youngest person in the history of the company. So I went from the guy that was going to get fired to that, but I still was battling the anxiety and hypochondria. So all throughout my life, it seems like right until mid twenties, uh, in my personal life, it was like a struggle constantly, but I feel like there was something driving me professionally to make sure that I didn't finish any story without having at least some success within it. So I don't know how deep you wanted me to go, but that's kind of the start of where my journey took off. But I think those are the key, uh, we'll call it jump off points that kind of made it all start, if you will. Wow. Don't start a story without, or however you worded that. How how did you just word that? Because that was powerful. Well, I just, that I wanted to make sure I never finished any story without having at least some success notes in the chapter. Because so many people would easily find a reason to quit or many reasons to quit, especially, especially you factor in the hyper, the hypochondriac and the anxiety and the success or the lack of success in that first year. I mean, those are so many reasons right there to be like, Hey, this isn't for me and go get a desk job doing something else. So you just pushed through and, and then what, so you got the job with Toshiba and then what happened then? How did you end up becoming this sought after speaker and interviewing all these people. So it's funny because when people hear my age, they're like, how is that even possible? But what I will tell you, which is surprising some is I spent almost 10 years in that industry. So I had a full corporate career, almost 10 years in that industry, not 
all 10 with Toshiba. I worked with Toshiba for almost five years. Mm -hmm. And then I went to a company called Konica Minolta, which would be Toshiba's competitor for another Mm -hmm. five years. And so during that time, I still feel like it's weird how you can look back and say, this stuff here was my training ground. So I didn't know it at the time, but being in sales and getting rejected every day, all day and learning how to suck that up and deal with it. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, my first introduction to the world of speaking or sales training was Zig Ziglar because they gave me a VHS for those that know even what I'm saying when I say VHS, the old VHS uh, videotapes. And they I'll gave post me one a of those- picture in the description for anybody. Yeah, for that don't know. That's <laughs> what it is. And it plays in a VCR. And <laughs> so that, uh, so I they gave me this Zig Ziglar video mm-hmm. and it had a dramatic impact on my life because I watched this video. And by the way, to this day, I can still tell you parts from that video that I only watched once 35 years ago, well, 25 years ago, almost 30. And so it had a profound impact on my life. And it also, at that time, I didn't know it at the time, but it made me realize I didn't want to have anybody go without training. Mm-hmm. like for example, sales training, just because their company couldn't afford it. Because here I was working at the 58th largest company in the world. And my total training was, here's a Zig Ziglar video. Enjoy. Wow. So, so I won't say it was a seamless jump from there, but I spent 10 years in corporate sales. And again, going out, selling door to door, selling photocopiers. Nobody wants to buy photocopiers. So I learned a whole bunch about communication, about dealing with people, about dealing with rejection, even how to deal with, um, if people had objections, like, you know, why well, my brother already is, my brother's in the same industry as you and I buy from him. Uh, how do you deal with that? So I even learned about planning for responses of how do I, what are my five ways to respond to the most common things people say, like your price is too high. And I learned all these stuff in sales. And then I finished in that industry as a manager. So I also learned the manager side of the corporate world. And as far as my speaking career, what happened was, because I will say it started before those 10 years were done, probably the last three and a half, four years I was speaking part-time. I was using all my, my vacation days, my weekends, my evenings to speak when I could. And how that started, which is a totally another random weird story, is I had written a stage play to be in a fringe festival. And I wrote this play and I didn't want to be on the stage. I At this point in my life, I was terrified of the idea of ever speaking in front of three people, let alone wow. an audience. And so what happened was I wrote and directed the play. Didn't want to be in it. But one of the actors, the lead actor, and maybe this was a synchronicity, sprained his ankle on the way to the show halfway through the, the seven-day run. And so he credit to him, he still did the whole rest of the play because we needed him to do it. But um, he now had to uh, needed more time for his costume changes. So I had to write a new character or two to be in the play, but everybody else was already maxed. So I was like, okay, who else knows the lines of the play except for the actors? Well, the only guy that's going to figure it out in a day is the writer-director. So I had to write myself parts. But what I did was I wrote myself parts where I could walk out with my back to the audience wearing a wig. That's how, And I was still covered in sweat, even though nobody could see my face other than the other actor. And the other actor, it was probably throwing them off seeing my sweaty face. Yeah. And I was terrified. But I did the play. We finished it off. And I asked one of the actors in the car, I remember on the last day on the way home, dude, like I was a mess there. How could I overcome this, do you think? Because what if this happens again? And he said, I don't know if this is the answer, but there's a stand-up comedy workshop at the local university if you want to come with me. And he wanted to be an actor, so he was going. And I said, sure, because that doesn't mean I'll ever get on the stage. As a writer-director, I still need to learn about the, the craft of comedy, I thought. So I went to this workshop, and two weeks, all we were taught is here's how to adjust the mic stand. And this is the number one fear in the world, even above public speaking, certainly above death. Mm-hmm. And all we were taught was, here's how you adjust the mic stand. 
Week number three, I was excited about because we were going to go watch people entertain us. So we promoted the heck out of the show. We filled this place. And then we get there in five minutes of showtime. The guy that got us into this mess says, guys, are you ready? And we're like, what do you mean ready? Where's the, where are the entertainers? And he said, you're looking at them. So we found out with five minutes notice, no material, we no. were to perform that night. No. 100%. Oh, and, and he never I told me. Like sweat. <laughs> well, it made a lot of us sweat that night too. And there were 15 people that paid for the workshop. I went to the bathroom, and this is sort of a joke, but I remember doing it to try to find an exit window to just like I wanted to escape so people can see me escape, but still get out of there. Uh-huh. But there was no exit window, so I came back out. And eight of the 15 comics had already walked out the front door. More than 50 percent just left. And oh. these are people that were actually actors and film and everything else. Like they had experience, they just hadn't been on a stage. And I remember thinking, if I don't go, I remember I had this vision of me as an older man pointing at the stage going, if I don't go up there, I'm going to be that old man regretting that I didn't do it. And mm-hmm. that's the only thing that pushed me to do it. And the new debate was who's going to go up first. And everybody was debating that. So it's like 10 minutes after showtime and nobody's hit the stage. And I've been to Toastmasters once and I learned one thing. If you're going to face a fear like this, do it first. Don't watch everybody else go through it first. Yeah. So I jumped on the stage, grabbed the mic. Now, I never told anybody I was going to do this. Launched into the first joke, dead silence. No. Launched into the second joke, dead silence, and maybe a tumbleweed went by. <laughs> and the guy that got us into this mess calls me over, gives me a schmuck in the back of the head, and he said, you idiot, we haven't even turned the mic on yet. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you saw that, that was going, because I didn't at the time. So <laughs> that's usually where I finish the story, but I'll add in, people ask me now what happened after. We did turn the mic on, I did get back on stage, I did tell the same jokes, and they bombed again. So I think I'm the only comedian in history to bomb twice. Stop. The same material. <laughs> Not even a courtesy laugh, huh? <laughs> well, it was like a... <clears throat> Perfect. It's like Perfect. a... Yeah, what you'd want to hear. And yeah. uh, at the end result, and actually the, the second night I performed there, the owner of the club heckled me. The owner of the club. Ruined my bit. He yelled up something about, like I ta- mentioned a girl that I worked with, and he said, what, a case of beer? And I couldn't hear what he said. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? And then he's like, I'm what? And then I'm talking to an audience person that I can't even hear. So I can't even come back from it. And so I went, so I guess that tells you I went back again. So I went back week after week and kept performing. And here's to finish the whole story. How I got into speaking is I kept going back to comedy, kept bombing. And then I went to a Tony Robbins event with somebody was sitting next to them. And they said, can you imagine he's getting paid to do this? And I said, needle you know needle on the record stop hold the firm what he's getting paid people get paid to speak and i'm going to the comedy club and driving there and using my gas my car breaking down and having to deal with that preparing for 30 week 30 hours a week for material and this guy's getting paid and so i wanted some of that so what happened was i pitched the local community college convinced them to let me teach a sales course and then for lack of going through a bunch of more stuff the rest of they say is history i kept performing stand-up for nine years so mm-hmm. performed with 700 shows and kept uh, speaking, and now it's 20 years. And so that's how I got into speaking. I mean, you can probably hear, which is good news for people, it wasn't a smooth path, and I wasn't that guy that just grew up and said, I'm going to speak on stages. So right. I don't know if I went far enough into that story. No, it's that's perfect. I mean, it just felt like all the synchronicities, and it just seemed like that it was clearly where you were meant to go with how things worked out and how you just you push through all of those tests, especially with the comedy show and, and going back after that. I mean, like I said before, like most people wouldn't even get on the stage. Like they would have been the ones out the door, but for you to bomb, bomb again and keep going out there, it's no wonder why you now have the level of success that you have because you've, you pushed through it and you kept showing up. 
So very cool. Thank you so much for sharing that. So I have a few questions for you um, because you're going to give us some tips on how to land a top, but some questions for you for people. Hmm, I wonder if we should do that first or if you should give us the tips. I'll have you give us the tips first because you may go ahead and answer some of these. And if I still have some of these questions, then we'll go through them. Yeah, absolutely. So the reason why I wanted to even talk about this topic, because I've never talked about anything like this on Six Figure Influencer. We usually keep it to social media um, and engagement and things like that. But I've worked with so many women, many one-on-one. And one of the first things that I go through with these women is, okay, what is your mission? Why, Why are you on this platform? There has to be a why. And some are very lighthearted and, you know, I want to help women make quick meals, whatever. And then some are filled with passion and have like so much purpose behind it. And many of these women share with me, because I always ask like, what's the big goal? What's like the big dream that you're afraid to share? And many of them, their answer is getting paid to speak and speaking on a stage. And I too shared that same dream for myself at one point. So I just thought it'd be really neat to have you on here and share your story and give us some tips because I want to remind women out there that this is possible and you should go for it no matter what, because you, I mean, you didn't have this crazy privileged upbringing. Um, you kind of, how you came through was a little rocky and you were tested, but you persevered. And now you look back and it's been 20 plus years and you've done all these incredible things. So thank you for showing us that it's possible. And now what advice would you give for anybody listening and myself included who does have this dream to one day walk out on a TED stage themselves? So I'm glad you asked it that way because my answer is going to be different if you ask me, how do I get paid to speak? How do Mm -hmm. I get paid speaking engagements versus how do I get on a TEDx stage? Mm Because they're dramatically different paths and directions. The TEDx stage, I think the best thing I can do for everybody listening is to give you the path that I would say that's going to help you understand what's going to help you land a TEDx talk versus going through every nuance of it. Cause every nuance of it would take you probably hours to explain. Mm-hmm. But if, as long as you understand the basis of why I do the way I do uh, in terms of when I'm approaching a TEDx uh, event, cause I've helped a lot of other people get TEDx talks. Like uh, 2019, we had a student every three weeks landing their TEDx talk. So wow. I, I did it, but also I've helped a lot of people. And here's the cusp of, what some of the key things that most people don't do, but should be doing if they want to land a TEDx stage. So the first thing is, I'll tell you through what most people do. So most people go, I want to speak at TEDx Dallas. I'm just randomly picking one out of the air. Mm-hmm. And then they find TEDx Dallas website if they're lucky, because some don't even have websites, which makes it whole that much harder. But let's say it's easy. Let's say TEDx Dallas has a website and it says nominate yourself or nominate someone else. And let's say you're nominating yourself. What most people do is they go to that nomination form and they start typing. They literally go, okay, uh, what's your name? How often have you spoken? Have you done this before? Here's the problem with that. A lot of big TEDx events can get as many as 2,000 applications for 10 spots. So -hmm. start doing the math. And what you realize, that means you have a less than 1% chance Mm -hmm. unless you have some special 
Uh, whether it's you know somebody, you have a topic that just everybody drools over, there's got to be something big. And most of us don't have that. So first of all, you're really decreasing your odds by just following that pattern of just typing in the first answers that come to your mind. Now, and here's the irony. You might be thinking, I'm going to say, well, then you just need to think longer about the answers. That's not the answer either. You need to understand how the organizers of an event think, and especially the organizers as of a TEDx event. So I'll give you an example of a question that stumps a lot of people. There'd be a question like, have you delivered this talk? What's your idea? And have you delivered this talk before in any other stages? Please list them. So what do you think most people do when they read a question like that? They think, oh, crap, they want to know if I'm comfortable delivering this talk. (laughs) So I'm going to list 10 places I delivered it. Here's the challenge with that. Most TEDx events want you to bring an idea to the stage that hasn't been shared on another stage before. You might disqualify yourself by trying to answer the question the way you think most people would want to know, not realizing that some, some events would want you to have delivered it all over. They don't care. But with TEDx, because they're launching one talk from you and that's it, they want it to be the only one. So you think it would say, no, we're not looking for somebody who's delivered it, but they don't always say that. The other thing is a lot of people don't know TEDx isn't looking for motivational speakers. So if somebody thinks they're a motivational speaker and puts that there, that could disqualify them. Mm-hmm. Uh, TEDx Wilmington, I had a friend there that told me one time, who was an organizer, that they turned down 99% of the applicants based on how they answer the first question. So when I said there's 2,000 people applying, think about it. If you can answer the first question right, you're now down to like, what, 100? You're and the first question audience. is what? What's your idea? Uh, well, that, then this is the thing. That question has changed. But at the time, at the time, it was the question I just mentioned of how many times have you delivered this talk? How many times? Oh, I gotcha. Okay, yeah, yeah. But the question now has changed. They have a different first question. But it just kind of tells you if you don't know the mindset, you're mm-hmm. already against an uphill battle. So that's the first thing is to understand the mindset. And the challenge with that is I, now I'm talking with how you answer one question. The TEDx forms have different answers because they're, they're independently organized events. Mm-hmm. under the TED umbrella. So their questions could be different. And so you almost have to understand the full mindset. But mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you a second thing you could do, which is going to help you, even if you don't understand the mindset, jump ahead of quote unquote, the masses. So let's look at another scenario. If you're the organizer, what does that life look like? So if you're the organizer, let's say there's four organizers for this event. There could be 10, but let's say there's four. Think about what happens on their end. So now you're submitting it, but what happens to them? They receive 2000 applications via email. Mm-hmm. So now think about if you were a group of, with a group of three other people and you're reviewing 2,000 mm-hmm. applications, which by the way, could be 10 answers. So I don't know what that works out in the number or like uh, even just answers, but you know, whatever 2,000 is times 10, what is that like 200 or 20,000 yeah. answers? So the question is, how, do, how would I stand out if you're the organizer? Meaning if you're reading them, aren't they going to eventually start going together and your head's gonna get, you're going to get a headache? Absolutely. And you might go, well, the first one, I love that one. So they made it. Or you might go, what's the last one? We, that last one we read was awesome because that's the last one you looked at. And then you also have people that are in that group. There's four people, let's say, that could have different bias or different feelings on what a good talk is. So there's so many variables. So why would you want to go into that pool? So what I'm saying instead, and this is the part where it gets hard because I'm going to tell you what to do but how to do it is also a science. But what you need to do is you need to get on the radar of the organizers themselves. Mm-hmm. So they need to say, Allie, how do I know her? I've seen her name somewhere. She share my social media stuff. And in a perfect world, if there's four of them, you want all four of them saying that. But even two out of four, it's kind of all of a sudden they're going to go, how do we know her? Oh, she shares my stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden they're looking at your name, recognize it. And you now, all of a sudden, they don't recognize the 1900 and whatever, 99 other ones. All of a sudden, you've jumped the queue. Now, 
So the other thing, I mean, there's things you can do with that. One, if you can find out who the organizer is, you could, and because some people have a problem with this, like I say, one option is to figure out who the organizer is and then just connect with them and start sharing stuff and mm-hmm. start talking about stuff and just becoming a, a, a relationship with, building a relationship with them. But the other scenario, some people say, well, I don't like that because they don't know that I'm also doing it because I'd like to land a TEDx talk. I said, then, t- then tell them, reach out to them and say, hey, I see that you're with TEDx, whatever. I'm just wondering how you go about picking the speaker or how would I go about submitting? And then if they're going to, they might say, here's the link. And then likely they're going to say something like, I'll watch for your submission. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden now they're watching for your submission yeah. while the rest are just coming through. Yeah. And this is me kind of dissecting certain elements because there's a whole bunch of sort of little things beyond that you can do. But the core of it is you need the organizer to know you or recognize you so that you're not just another number. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, you need to know how the organizer thinks or you're not filling out your application like everybody else. Right. If you do those two things well, and you understand those two things, what I've seen is your odds are going to go to about 60 or 70% from less than 1%. Wow. And then you can put the layer on the cake with, there's a whole bunch of other little ones you can do that'll, uh, for example, posting on Facebook, hey, I'm looking to do a TEDx talk. Anybody know anyone? Even just something as simple as that, you don't know maybe your cousin's doing an event and never thought you'd like to do one of those. Sure. Um, So those are little ones. I mean, there's a whole lot we teach, but those are ones that really can move the needle. They're little, but they're game-changing ones. Do you recommend, and I know that we're focusing a lot on TED Talks, which of course, this is not limited to just TED, but that's, I feel like most people would recognize, you know, the TED stage and TEDx. I know that you you can nominate yourself or other people can nominate for you. Do you think there are people out there who have they they have people nominate them? Like they do some sort of giveaway and whoever nominates them the most for a TED talk. Have you ever heard of people doing that? Or is that just me? I have. <laughs> no, no, I know I have. And I think it's a great idea. But here again, the only caveat to it is that you gotta also think from the organizer's perspective. And if they see 50 come through nominating one person, they're also going to see that maybe as a red flag. Great point. Like almost like too many, something's going on here. What's this? And then they're going to, they're probably going to search and they might find it on your page or something. And mm. then they might, for, we don't know for why they would, but they might be bothered by that. So if you're going to do that, what I would say is do it more along the lines of the first five people to nominate me. Don't just say whoever nominates me because I think it sounds weird. It gets counterintuitive because any other place, if you're nominated 50 times, they go, we need her. Right. But the organizers in this type of thing are going to say something's fishy. Why so many? Oh, I'm sure people do it all the time. Well, and they probably think you just asked 50 of your people in your mastermind group to all just nominate you. But okay. if, it's a, if it's a low number, but more than one, mm-hmm. I think that makes it more intriguing. And in a perfect world, if you're applying for one that's looking ongoing, maybe have somebody apply you every three weeks for you. Ooh. So now all of a sudden they see like five applications, nominations come through over the course of two months. That's right. a lot less fishy than 50 coming in like crazy at once. Interesting. Okay. Note to self, only a few nominations. Got it. Okay. Um, Very cool. And is that what you did? Is that how you landed? Did you just come to them with a banging idea and they were like, yes, that is awesome. So I would love to say yes, but Mm -hmm. when you do three talks, the odds, if you have in three banging ideas that they all say, this is amazing and you stood out over a thousand or a hundred or whatever, because some of the smaller ones might have a couple of hundred applications, but the odds of that are pretty slim. That's probably only going to happen once. So for me, all three of them were a case of me doing what I, some of the elements I just said, and mm-hmm. a few more, 
but once I did the first one and figured out those things, then I reverse engineered it. And then I did, I actually, I guess what I'm saying is I practiced what I preach to land the talks. The first one though was very unique. Um, but I mean, there were some elements to it as that how it worked out, but I really was just starting to get familiar with Ted and somebody reached out to me and said, Corey, you should be speaking at this event. I see they're looking for speakers. And I reached out to them and I had missed the call for like the call for uh, speakers. So mm-hmm. I reached out to them and they're like, oh, you know, great idea, but we don't need any more speakers. And I said, okay, sounds good. You know, and, and, but I, I followed up uh, a couple of times and said, you know, if, if somebody does cancel, let me know. And then I reached out and said, you know, um, also, I know you'll probably do one next year. If I can improve my idea, let me know. And I just really was trying to build a relationship, even though I thought there's no chance I'll speak there. And lo and behold, I got a message saying, Corey, we had somebody cancel. And we were all talking and we love your idea. And so we, even though there's a queue of a wait, like all these other people in front of you, don't tell them we said this, but we want to move you up because you are so persistent. We feel like we know you now and we loved your idea. And the idea for that one was what I call the, uh, the five weeds. So it's my talk about removing the five weeds from your life. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I will say that talk resonated with a lot of people after I did it. But as far as the idea, it also fit kind of well with their theme because they had this really unique theme of um, they wanted it basically to be somebody covering. It was really a weird scenario, but they want somebody to cover different aspects of the universe, let's say, or life. And none of them be very even similar at all. So they had like a person that was a horse whisperer talking about healing people through horses. Then they had another person talking about 3d printing for uh, printing legs and limbs that you lose. And so mine with the weeds, I was the only one that was like, um, let's call it self-help or professional development. Sure. But they wanted a different thing for each per, each um, element. So every every speaker was completely different from the other one. Nobody was even close. Whereas sometimes, like one of mine, they had a theme. The one I did on crushing your fears, that mm-hmm. one, the theme was uh, basically into the wild, I think it was called. And it was about getting out in nature. And, and so what I did, and there's another tip, I guess. What I did for that talk is my original title was the war, uh, Unleashing your the Warrior Within. Mm. And my talk, when I sent it in, had a picture of me like a warrior. But then I delivered the talk knowing that I could make it so generalized that it wouldn't just be appealing to people that wanted to unleash their inner warrior. And then I asked them before they posted, any chance we can change the title? And so I got the title changed because I, that way I could fit within the theme they were looking for. But then the talk, you got to remember, they're, they're sharing these each individually, not as part of a theme. So anybody watching my talk doesn't know who else spoke in the event or what the theme was. Right. I didn't want to be tied to a theme, so I spoke as if I wasn't tied to the theme, but I leveraged the theme to get the book in. Wow. Wow. I mean, the foresight is just, I, I got to give it to you. That's impressive. Very cool. Well, and you know, I mean, it's honestly, I think part of it too is because of being a speaker for a while. I also understood the event planning side. So I had a little bit of an understanding of the mindset. And I will say as well, I was, I am an obsessive learner. So I, when I got to the TEDx event, I did speak at the first one, every organizer I could talk to, I tried to learn as much about TEDx as I could from. Yeah. Learning from the mindset. And one of the people said to me, when I said, what do you look for in a TEDx talk? What's a good TEDx talk or an idea? And I'll never forget the way he said it was a riddle almost, but if you read into it, you understand what he means. He said, we look for somebody to share an idea that hasn't been shared or that's been, uh, that's universal that we can all understand but it's shared in a way that has never been shared before and shared in a way that we can understand it like we've never understood it before. Holy moly. <laughs> exactly. Got it. But, but really what they're saying is an idea we can all understand and get behind, but we've never heard anybody pitch it like this before. Sure. 
it's just a new new perspective on it. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. And to book three of those, I mean, the first time you booked it, did you just freak out? Not so much, only because it was to me it was still new, like mm-hmm. meeting Ted. I knew it was something that nobody else was doing, and I knew it had been around for a while. Mm-hmm. But it was just it was at that tipping point before it just got massive. So uh, for okay. me, I was like, this is cool. And yeah. I understood that that video is going to be put out unedited forever. So uh-huh. that was really uh, nerve wracking because I knew that I understood how it worked, but I didn't understand the, the how uh, much leverage that talk gives you for other opportunities, I guess is what I'm getting at. But I was pumped. I was excited. And I did. I drove over the night before. Uh, it was fairly close to where I was based before that. So, uh, and they did something I don't know if they're allowed to do any. I know they don't do it now, but I don't know if they were allowed to do it at the time. But they even paid for my uh, kilometers to get there. They paid for some travel for me. And nice. I drove the night before, and I had already been practicing it a lot. But even then, I was practicing in front of the mirror. I planned what I was going to wear, which I never do. Because, mm-hmm. again, I knew this was going to be on video forever. Yeah. So, yeah, I had a good feel for what was going on. But I wasn't as excited as I probably would have been had I known what TEDx is now and what it could become. Gotcha. How did you prepare for that? Like for, for that level of speaking engagement and you know, you've spoken at Harvard before, you've done two other, you've been on the TEDx stage two other times. How do you pre- prepare for that level of speaking engagement? Do you, do you script yourself? How often do you practice? What is your method? So my belief, and this is going to sound weird, but my belief is you need to build the house and the foundation before mm-hmm. you can destroy the house and the foundation. So what I mean by that is my belief, and this is more for a TEDx talk. I don't necessarily believe all speakers have to practice. A lot of speakers will tell you they do have to, but I don't believe all speakers should have to practice for every talk. Mm-hmm. But this is a different beast, you know, talk that could end up becoming your career maker like it did for Simon Sinek or Brene Brown. Sure. So, so what I do for that is a little different than what I would recommend for every other talk necessarily. But for me, what I do when I say build a foundation is I need to know the talk inside and out before I can start going off script. That's mm-hmm. the way I work with it only with TEDx. Um, but so what that means is I prepared my talk and, and I have a whole system that I help people with preparing the talks. I have a thing called the spider method, which is a mind mapping exercise. Mm-hmm. And I use that, which basically come, helps me come up with the three things. Cause I believe in speaking in the rule of three, meaning you should only really try to share three main uh, stories or through lines or what have you. To, to basically, especially a short talk like 18 minutes, to build around one theme. So what I did for the talk and what I did for all three of them is I built my spider method to say, okay, let's say I'm going to talk about the five weeks. So in this case, I talked five, which again, knowing what I know now, I probably w- would have done three. But let's mm-hmm. say this one I did five. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to have five legs for my spider and I'm going to figure out what are the five messages around po- the core theme of pulling your weeds am I going to focus on? And so I figured out those first. And once I figured that out, then I could start practicing. Because once I know what the five things are, then I'm gonna, I use one story to illustrate a point. So what's the one story for each of these five points? Mm-hmm. And so once I know all that, then I start practicing. And so to answer your question, how often? Once I get to the point where I'm delivering the talk out loud, I probably record it on my phone, I would say no less than 50 times. And, but how I do that is when I'm driving around doing things. Okay. Like I'm not driving, obviously, as much or or traveling as much now speaking-wise, but normally it's not abnormal for me to do a talk at one place and then drive two hours for another talk. So I can practice it like 10 times on one trip. So when I say 50 times, that could be just five days. Got it. But 
the point is I'm practicing it over and over and I'm, I'm seeing what works. Even as I practice, I'm recording at my phone then listening back and I'm slowly but surely making little changes. And by the time I'm ready to present, I know that talk fairly well inside and out. But here's why I said build the foundation, then I can break it. When I get on stage, I still then read the audience. I still then, so I have a whole framework that I have to stay within in an outline, but it doesn't mean I'm not going to go off script a little bit because now I know it so well, I can go off script and still come back on script. The problem people run into is if they wing it or don't know it well, if they get taken off course by any small thing, like the mic makes a hiccup, they're toast now. Sure. So me, I can always, I just know, okay, well, I, I was on point two and now I decided to talk about this. Well, now I need to get back for point three. Got it. As long as I know it well, then I can go off script, if you will. And like an example, if you watch my third one called What Would I Tell My Younger Self? Mm -hmm. That one uh, is my shortest one. It's only five minutes. It was obviously a challenge to do five minutes. But if you listen in there and hear me say, it's about the talk is really about what's the common message after these thousands of interviews when I've asked this question, what would you say to your younger self if you could jump back in a time machine and sit across from it? And I, so I had a common message, but in the moment of delivering the talk, I decided on a funny message that I shared, which by the way, a, speak, a person did say in the interview, but I was risking it because I didn't know I was going to bring it up that time. And I said, you know, one common answer was that people said, if they could go back and talk to the younger self is watch this company called Facebook <laughs> and once it starts buy shares. And here's the point where you, you stop buying shares. Type right. thing. And right. that guy laughed. And then there was another guy who said to me, he would tell his younger self, he was, he's a musician, his name is Gordy Johnson. And he said, I would tell myself, dude, you're not always going to be this hungry. Somebody's going to buy you a cheeseburger at some point. Uh-huh. And so those are two funny ones that I didn't plan to say in my talk, and they both got laughs. But mm-hmm. then I went back to the core message, which was essentially the thing they would say to the younger self is the thing that you're worried about right now probably won't matter in one year, let alone 10. Mm. Stop beating yourself up over something you need to do to have the synchronicities you're going to have later that's going to make you who you become. So good. So, so anyway, that's just to give you an example of I knew the script, I went off script. and yeah. But I still know I had to stay within five minutes roughly. Okay. So you just practice it enough, you get that foundation, and then it allows you to have some fun on stage if you feel comfortable. Absolutely. Very good. Not everybody's going to feel comfortable. So if you need to say the script, say the script. Say the script. I, I'm, I'm a say the script type of gal, I feel like. Um, okay. And you mentioned that you did Toastmasters one time. And that was actually a question that I wanted to ask you because Toastmasters is something that I know a lot of people um, love and do to prepare for you know whatever comes up in the future. Obviously, you didn't do that for very long. Did you do anything else to prepare for this level of public speaking besides practice? Yeah. So great question because it ties back into Toastmasters. So interestingly enough, whenever I performed stand-up that night, I had only been to one Toastmasters because I had never spoken public. Then full circle it, a couple of maybe three years later, four years later, I went back to Toastmasters and went for about six months. So every week, a weekly one. So what's that, 24 times? What's really interesting about it is I was already a paid speaker by the time I went there. Mm -hmm. And the first time I did my icebreaker, I had 11 or 13 ums and ahs in two minutes. And the first time we said, aren't you a paid speaker? (laughs) And they started laughing. And the next week, I had two ums and ahs. And the next week, I had zero. And it's because in my head, psychologically, I didn't want to be known as the guy who's getting paid to speak. So one thing, Toastmasters cost me probably, it worked out to about $5.00 a week, or correct, no, $5 a month. It was only like $70 a year, $5 a month. And it got rid of my ums and ahs, which I probably would have still had for maybe four or five more years. Wow. Uh, so Toastmasters was very valuable to me. 
And I really enjoyed it. The reason I didn't keep going is out. So I love Toastmasters. I recommend everybody goes. But for me, I was worried because I started watching the, the experienced Toastmasters and I felt they had like a practiced feel to them. Mm-hmm. Like everything was nuanced and they would, they would go, uh, like you can't see this if you're watching, uh, if you're listening, but they would put their hand in a certain way and say, you need to do this. They would uh-huh. over accentuate everything. And I didn't want to be seen as kind of a robotic speaker that was great but so rehearsed that you could see it. And I'm not saying that Toastmasters does that or all Toastmasters generals or anything are like that. I just mean I've seen a few people in my group that were, and it kind of just said to me, okay, I need to jump out now. I got what I could. Um, But I I never stayed for the do like there's, I think it's 10 different types of speeches. I didn't stay for all that or anything, but I, I was in it long enough to learn some really powerful lessons and strategies and then also to get rid of those ums and ahs, which I didn't go in it for that, but that was massive. Yeah. Super, super massive. Yeah. I mean, I can't say one sentence without saying, um, so that's enough for me to hear and give Toastmasters another try. I almost started Toastmasters and then I I couldn't make the timing work. So it's good to hear that, that you, it has your, um, seal of approval. And by the way, you can, I'm not going to reject, but I was going to say probably an important note. Now you can do it virtually. So now it's even easier. Like they're doing virtual uh, sessions. And just to, to finish one other thing I would say too, I did get obsessed with reading books about speaking. So the presentation secrets of Steve Jobs, Speak and Grow Rich, Talk Like Ted, TED Talks. And then I also studied videos of speakers and said, why does this work? Okay. So very helpful. Uh, and I'll look, I'll link those books in the show notes too. So I appreciate that. And I'll also link your podcast because obviously you share a ton of helpful content there too, for people wanting to get paid to speak, which leads me to my, my next question, which is for those who dream of getting paid, how long do they need to do you like, how, how do you recommend people handle their speaking career? Do they do engagements for free for a certain amount of time just to get on as many stages as possible? Or do you recommend people charging right out the gate? What's your two cents there? So again, it's one of those things where I could go really deep, but I won't. So I'm just going to give you the base level on this. Mm -hmm. But uh, there's a couple of things there. On one hand, I would say, here's here's the way I word it. I always say there's lots of good reasons to speak for no fee, but there's never a good reason to speak for free. Mm. And first of all, so it's a mindset. So you need to get, and I'm talking in general as a person getting into the speaking business, you need to get around the idea of no fee. Because when I say no fee, what I mean is you might not be getting a fee, but you need to think, what am I getting from this? So if you're doing a talk, you might be able to sell from the stage, but you might not get paid to be there. Mm-hmm. But you can still sell and make money from the stage. You might just be able to do a call to action to get people to sign up for your newsletter. Mm-hmm. You might be able to sell books at the back of the room. There's a whole you might you might just be able to talk about your business, which might be worth more than you to you than getting paid to speak. But let's go back to the original question. If your goal is to get paid as a, a full-time speaker, and that's what I've been doing for 20 years, and I will say it's not as common as people think. There's a lot of people speaking that won't tell you, but they're not getting paid to be there. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. They could have various other reasons, but it's a big struggle when they, they want to get paid to be there and they're not. And mm-hmm. I have a lot of people come to me in that situation. So what I would say, and maybe it's the reason that I was able to jumpstart it quicker, ignorance is bliss. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to be getting paid to start with. Mm-hmm. Nobody told me that. There was no rules or books. So what I did early on is I would say, okay, if I'm not going to get paid, now I came from a sales background and maybe that helped, but if I'm not going to get paid, 
what am I going to get? Mm-hmm. And so I remember I did this. One of my first early talks was over this uh, fitness group. They had nine locations. And Dean was the name of the CEO. And he reached out and he said, Corey, somebody told me we should bring you in to speak for us. But he said, we don't got much of a budget. And so what, what do we do here? And I understood how powerful his influence was and how just his word would get me other bookings. But I also said, I'm still not going to do it for free. So I said, okay, how about this? And I didn't, I said, I'll get back to you. So I said, how about this, Dean? Here's what I came up with. Give me three separate 90-day, three-month gym memberships that I can give to other clients and a testimonial if you like my talk. Because mm. I don't believe in giving somebody a testimony because you agreed to it as part sure. of payment. Uh, so what happened was I did the talk. Dean sent me a reference letter. So we went one step further because the reference letter had like five cool sound bites in there. One of them was, uh, we realize now we need to bring you in to speak at every one of our sales conferences in the future. Wow. The second one, and this was, I was early, like my first six months, he said, I've seen many presenters over the last 24 years, but none that I've liked as much as you. Wow. Those two sound bites got me lots of gigs from putting it on my website. So mm-hmm. I got payment. It just wasn't in money. Then Very the three gym memberships, I leveraged those for clients that brought me in to speak. I would give them to them. Uh, and then what I would do is if a client couldn't pay me, I'd say, well, okay, I need you to pay for my travel to get there. And then let me at least tell people about my book. Or I would work with a client, like I worked with the ALS Society, and said, how about let's put an event together, a fundraiser, and we'll charge a ticket price. It'll include a copy of my book, and we each take half. Mm-hmm. And then I'm getting cover for my book, and you're getting money to raise for ALS. And I think we raised that one event I'm thinking of top of mind, like $6,000 for ALS. And I still got paid to be there. In fact, I got paid, you know, it was thousands of dollars to be there. Right, it was right. a so what I'm getting at here is if you want to get paid to speak and start down that path, I think you need to come in with the mindset that I, I'm worth the money. And I think what's really served me, because I talk to so many people that struggle now because they've been speaking for five years, they're probably worth $8,000 a talk, but psychologically, they can't get past the fact that I haven't charged that. Mm-hmm. So imagine though, you started out charging for gym memberships. And what I did was I started, I didn't mention this, but Dean hired me the next month and he paid me $250. Then he hired me the next month, it was 500. The next month, 750. And the fourth or fifth month was 1,000. And then I reached his limit. And I stayed with him another six months at that rate. And then I had to move on yeah. and I passed it to somebody else. But the takeaway there is within a year, I was up to $1,000 with this one client. And so the psychological side was huge. So I would say when somebody's just starting out, even if all you're asking for is a testimonial, Mm-hmm. That is enough. I'm going to give you one game-changing idea that if I only said this to people wanting to get into speaking, it would change the trajectory if they know how to practice it and if they do it. But I use a thing, uh, I mean, it's not called, but I have an evaluation form. took years to craft the way it looks right now. But what I do is a lot of events now, they're like, oh, well, let's just get people to fill it out on the app, an application. My experience is when people fill out your, uh, your evaluation form on an app, less than 5% do Mm -hmm. Or if they say, let's get them to send it in digitally, it never happens. You chase them forever, you get 5%. If you can get people to fill it out there with a pen on the site, I've had as high as 98%. Okay. So now when I say this, here's why it's significant though. Let's say you have a room of 100 people. Let's Mm -hmm. choose that example. And by the way, there's a takeaway from this. If you want to get started in speaking, uh, especially as live events start opening up again, what you want to do is call a local business association or chamber of commerce where there's multiple people in the room that have different businesses that could hire you. You want to offer to speak for no fee, as we Mm -hmm. talked about earlier, but Mm -hmm. the agreement is I want to be able to bring my valuation form and hand it in. Now, in your valuation form, and I'm going to skip everything because it would take me a half hour to explain all the things on the form. They're mm-hmm. all valuable. One of them is, um, can we use your testimonial? What are your, what's your thoughts on my talk? And can we use it in conjunction with our marketing? So think of you if you have 100 business owners in the room. 
and 80 say, we loved Ali's talk. And our company is JY Smith Welding. Every one of those 80 can be separate testimonials for website. Your first talk, you could have 80 testimonials. Genius. That's, that's one shortcut. But a bigger one than that is the question that says, do you, do you know of others who could benefit from a similar talk to the one I delivered today? And if so, can I follow up with you? Hmm. That talk gets me about 30, we figured out 30 to 35% of all my paid bookings for the last 20 years. That one That's question. Beautiful. Now, I'm, you have to know the whole form because it leads into each question, but right. that question is responsible for, uh, like again, 30% of my bookings, almost as many, not as many, but almost as many as referrals are responsible for. So that's a game changer, especially think about if you were doing that from your very first talk. If you went in and said, okay, I can't do it for free. I need to get um, a testimonial if you like my talk and I want you to trade me this, whatever their business is, or pay for my travel to get there. And then you say, but I want to hand out my valuation forms. Then you get there, you hand out your valuation forms, you leave with 80 testimonials and 10 people that say, yeah, you'd be a great fit for our company and you can follow up with them. If you did that for every talk, starting with your first one, you're going to be ahead of speakers that are five years in. You're going to be booked out for years. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a multiplier, right? It's a compound effect. Right. Because if you get five bookings, and I mean, I could, you know, I could dial into the numbers, but let's just say you got five leads. And let's say you book three leads. I'm just going to say, let's say you book three clients out of it. Well, now you're going to three events and you handed the evaluation form again. Mm-hmm. And let's just go with the same numbers. Now you got nine that mm-hmm. come from those first three. And you can just see where it goes from there. Right. Now there's a whole bunch of things. You got to knock it out of the park. You got to, you got to seed while you're talking a seed. Yeah. And here's one, one other nugget I'll give people when you're during a talk, whether it's by the way, virtual event doesn't matter. And it has to be true. But if you start speaking for no fee enough, this will happen and you can share it. But what I do is if I'm speaking, let's say in Philadelphia, and let's say I spoke last week in Toronto and -hmm. somebody asked me a question in Philadelphia, I'm going to say, you know, and let's say I know their name. It's interesting you asked that, Bob, because just last week in Toronto, when I was speaking there, another client asked me a question about blah, blah, blah. See what I did there? Mm-hmm. Now in the head of the audience, oh, he speaks a lot. He was just wow. speaking in Toronto last week. Wow. Yeah. And then they get the, the form and it says, do you know where Corey could speak? And now they've been told Corey speaks a lot and they're told right in the form. Obviously, he must do this for a living. And then they're filling out the form. The benefit of the form is some people will come up to you if you knock it out of the park and say, hey, we need to hire you to speak at our event. But if they see a line of 20 people, they might just say, I'll reach out to them later and forget. Or they might be scared to approach a speaker. Some people are nervous. So they might just say, I'll tell them later or I'll get to it some other day. But if they can fill out in a form anonymously, which is kind of ironic because I put an optional for name. But if they're telling you, yeah, you can reach out to me. I know a company. Well, they're giving you their contact info to reach out to them. So it's still not really anonymous. Right. And they can do it and nobody, yeah, they don't have to approach you directly and they can just knock it out, give it back to you and and then you can get back in contact. That is a game changing tip. Thank you so much for sharing that. Wow. Okay. You have delivered. Thank you so much. And I want to end this with, I'm taking something from you. You usually finish your interviews and you kind of touched on this with the question, what would you tell your younger self? But I want to put a little spin on it. What would you tell, like the biggest piece of advice for younger speakers or people who, who have the dream? And I know you just gave a ton of advice, but if there was like one nugget, one inspirational nugget that you could give us, what would it be? Okay, well, I'm going to go in a direction I didn't expect to go. Even as you're asking the question, I didn't think I was going to go here. But I would say, understand, start understanding the power of leverage. So this word leverage, how I mean it at least, 
is everything. And so when people ask me, what was the shortcut to your career? It's leverage. So what I'm getting at, so and how you use it is leverage. I'll think about put it this way. If you ask me, okay, how did I get to interview Bob Proctor? Mm-hmm. It was leverage. Uh, if you ask me how to get to interview Les Brown, it was leverage. And so what is the leverage I'm talking about? And this can be speaking just as easily as it can be at being an influencer. But what I'm getting at is you need to knock down the first few dominoes and then use those first few dominoes to knock down the rest. So for instance, you, you read my bio and you talked about doing a blue talk and interviewing 6,000 influencers. Well, each one of those separately, if it was only one of them, I can use it to get the next interview. So for instance, uh, I'll use an example, but my first big name influencer interview was with Jack Canfield, the chicken soup for the soul guy. Mm-hmm. And how I got that interview was from another influencer named Dan Sullivan. I knew that Dan was Jack's coach. And I, so I said, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get Dan on the show and I'm going to get him to talk about Jack. Mm-hmm. And so I got an interview with Dan. I got him to talk with Jack. And uh, I said, you know, uh, we love interviewing people like Jack on our show. And he goes, well, Jack should be on the show. He, and that was, what, that was what I was waiting for. He'd be a perfect fit. And I was already in contact with Jack's office, but they told me he turns down nine of every, nine of every 10 interviews. So I'm like, it's going to be a no, but let's make it not a no. So what I did was I took the clip of Dan saying, Jack needs to be on your show. Now, remember, Dan is Jack's coach. Uh-huh. So when I sent it to Jack's team, the next morning they came back and said, fine, Corey, you beat, up, you, you beat it into us, he'll do it. But it was because of that thing I did. So it was leverage. I leveraged Dan, and I wanted Dan on the show. You can't manipulate leverage, but I leveraged the fact that now I have Dan to get Jack. Now, let's think about what I could do next if I wanted to. I didn't do it in this order, but I could have then taken Dan and Jack. Now, Jack Coro, Chicken Soup for the Soul with Mark Victor Hansen. What I could have done, Dan, by the way, was Mark's coach as well. I could have went now to Mark Victor Hansen's team and said, hey, I had Jack and Mark, uh, Dan on the show. Mark mm-hmm. should come on the show. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden they have three to approach the next one. And by the time you have five or six, then all of a sudden it's an easy yes for people because they're like, yeah. well, all these people trust them. Well, that's the same with speaking. Get a speaking gig, no fee, like we talked about, yeah. and then uh, be able to say, well, I just spoke, like, let's say it's a funeral service association that you're mm-hmm. speaking at. I know it's a weird random pick, but <laughs> I, I just was talking to them recently. So let's say it's a funeral service association. Well, you know they have various chapters and everything else. So mm-hmm. you could get one and then go to the next one and say, oh, I was just speaking at so-and-so last week. And I asked them about you guys. And they said, you guys would be a perfect fit for this talk. Mm-hmm. And then now you've leveraged one to get the other one. And all of a sudden now you got two. Now you can go to another funeral. And by the time you have five, you can go to the main association and say, hey, I'd love to start talking to all your different chapters. Mm. So leverage is the takeaway. In whichever way you use it. Chess, not checkers, people. You got to think, use that brain and take action. And that, and I mean, I'm guilty of this too, where you kind of like twiddle your thumbs and you wait for the opportunity to come free, come to you. And you know, you're going to be waiting a long time. So I love how much action you've taken in your own career and how it is spun out into what it, what you have now. So Corey, thank you so much for taking the time. And I mean, you've shared so many nuggets and so much wisdom. I know everybody is going to love it. Where can we find you? So if it's okay, what I'd like to do, because it's it ties completely into almost everything we talked about, is if I can give away a free gift to people. Um, I mean, people usually love free gifts, so I think it's an, an easy in for people. But I have a book called The Book of Public Speaking. Mm-hmm. And it's real easy to find it. It's the book of public speaking.com. And okay. so it's, it's actually a, a real deal book. It's not like just a five page PDF or anything. Um, it's a digital book, but you can get a copy of it. First portion is me talking about speaking and what I've learned over the years. Second portion is the one I'm really excited about. It's interviews with people like Tom Ziegler, 
who mm-hmm. sat at the foot of his father, Zig Ziglar, and watched what he did. And I pulled those nuggets at it, Tom, for your benefit. And mm-hmm. then the third section is quotes by other speakers in terms of just nuggets of what they did when they started speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd like to give away this book. If people are wanting to uh, become an influencer, then I really feel speaking is one way to do it. And by the way, that's whether you're doing Facebook Lives, whether you're doing virtual summits, or you're speaking on live stages. And so I feel like this book will give you that next little step down your path. So I would say uh, people can find us and, and that book at the bookofpublicspeaking.com. Okay. I think that's probably the easiest route. And then if I can add one more, I would say we mentioned Blue Talks earlier. Yeah. You can check out what we're doing with Blue Talks at bluetalks.com and that's blue without the E. Yes. And I will link all of that in the show notes and wherever we share this podcast. So we'll get all of that in there. Thank you so much for the generous giveaway and all of this. You are awesome, Corey. Thank you. Uh, You're so kind. Thank you so much. This is honestly my passion. So thank you for making it easy. Clearly, clearly. Hey friend, thank you so much for listening. My goal is to help as many women as possible. And if this episode helped you in any way, you can directly impact my efforts by simply sharing a screenshot of this to your social media or team. Also, if you're looking for additional support, Feel free to find me on Instagram at Allie I. Reeves and or join the free Six Figure Influencer Facebook group.